0: We've been working on Create the Village for some time. Both the design and production of this podcast predated the COVID-19 crisis. However, we decided to push pause for the moment on the original show design so that we could launch the podcast and focus on some of the ways that COVID-19 is affecting community development. We're honoring the social distancing protocol, so you'll notice that we're conducting interviews by phone, and with Zoom. We're doing what we can to stay safe. I hope you are too. My name is Egbert Perry, and I'm the founder and CEO of The Integral Group, and this is Create the Village, a podcast that provides a platform where leaders from the private, public, and nonprofit sectors come together to speak candidly about the challenges facing American cities. Have you yet read the story of a 30-year-old Brooklyn charter school teacher who died of coronavirus complications after a month-long battle? If you have, then you know that she was turned away for testing twice, according to news reports. Zoe Munjan. A young teacher at the Send Academy in East New York developed symptoms on March 9th, according to her family. Although she suffered from high blood pressure and asthma, she tried to ride out the illness at home. On March 20th, after she started experiencing shortness of breath, her family called an ambulance. At some point, according to her sister, who is a nurse, the EMTs were Insinuating she was having a panic attack, saying that her lungs were clear. Although Zoe was admitted to the hospital, she was twice denied a COVID-19 test because of a shortage of kids, again, according to her sister. When she was admitted to the hospital, she was placed in a medically induced coma, intubated, and placed on a ventilator. Read the full story for yourself but know that it includes attempts to treat her with the malaria drug hydroxychloroquine with no luck, a second experimental drug, and transfers between three separate hospitals. Eventually, Zoe developed sepsis and needed antibiotics. Her condition deteriorated, and she developed heart arrhythmia. This past Monday, April 27, Zoe died. As we contemplate what happened in cities and states across America, it's not my intention to second-guess any one decision or to be critical of the decisions made at the local, state, or federal levels. I do, however, intend to underscore a statement I made in an earlier edition of Create the Village. The United States cannot regain and maintain its competitiveness on the world stage while it effectively writes off a significant portion of its human capital by structurally limiting their opportunities. It shouldn't matter, but it does. So I will share this additional information about Zoe. Zoe was class valedictorian at PS 202 in East New York. Zoe earned a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Wellesley College the elite private school in rural Massachusetts, and she received a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Dr. Paula Johnson, president of Wellesley College, said of Zoe that she, quote, touched the lives of so many members of our community here and beyond during her time at Wellesley, end quote. She was intelligent, driven, and full of promise. She was exactly the profile any parent would want teaching their child. Last, but certainly not least, Zoe Munjan was an African-American woman. Over the course of this current national crisis, the fissures in American society have been on display. Now is the time to lean in. To address the many fault lines that have been exposed during this pandemic. A new state of normalcy will be created. And the only question for you and for me is will you and will I participate in deciding what normalcy looks like? I intend to participate and I would encourage you to do so also. Before COVID-19 changed the world, literally, African-Americans were disproportionately adversely impacted by a community development crisis. COVID-19 has only exacerbated that deficit. African-Americans were the only people in this country, other than Native Americans, that have endured intentional efforts by their own government at all levels to limit opportunities for growth, development, and empowerment. And as a result, systemically, African-Americans are trapped in communities that do not provide for or facilitate upward mobility. A substantial number, not all, but far too many African-American communities can be characterized by the following. The absence of good educational options leading to poor educational attainment and absence of good grocery and food choices, if any food options at all, lead into the so-called food deserts a lack of safe community spaces and basic neighborhood services, a lack of affordable housing in healthy neighborhoods, meaning millions of African Americans are living in substandard conditions, a lack of access to adequate transportation or transit options, thereby limiting mobility, more likely to be downwind of toxic smokestacks or contaminated land, or in housing filled with lead-based paint, and on and on and on. And finally, a lack of access to good health care, resulting in generally poor health. Without drawing any conclusions about the circumstances surrounding Zoe's death, I can say that according to multiple studies, African Americans suffer exceedingly high rates of high blood pressure, as did Zoe. More than any other group, African-Americans experience high rates of asthma. Zoe had asthma. African-American women like Zoe report their experiences with the healthcare systems inexplicably include maltreatment, denial of pain medication, and being openly questioned about their ability to pay for care. In the first several days of COVID-19, I had a conversation with Margaret Abe Koga, Mayor of Mountain View, California. She's in the heart of Silicon Valley, and many of the largest technology companies in the world are headquartered in her city. On March 17th, again, very early in the pandemic, her city council approved funding to be used for renters who have been impacted by COVID 19. Today, you will hear her parts of that conversation. Also, today, you'll hear from Lucy Dadian, a senior research associate with the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. Lucy monitors state fiscal budgets and policies. With all the talk about forcing states into bankruptcy, falling oil and gas prices, as well as delaying federal tax filings until July, I wanted to understand the fiscal ramifications on states and their ability to continue services that affect citizens in real need. Within days of acknowledging COVID-19, Washington was taking steps to issue $2 trillion to stabilize our economy. And just last week, Congress passed the funding bill delivering half a trillion dollars in additional funding to replenish and supplement key programs under the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security, or CARES, the funding will go towards the Paycheck Protection Program, additional small business disaster loans and grants, hospitals and healthcare providers, and testing. Cities and states, many of them like Mountain View, California, stepped up immediately to help ensure people were not forced out of their homes. Now, these local and state governments are in need of federal assistance too. As you will hear in the conversation with Lucy, Services that help working people and our elderly are on the bubble for 2021 and possibly into 2022. Now we're hearing, somehow, there isn't enough money to help cities and states, and politicians are drawing partisan distinctions between red states and blue states. Regardless of how it is settled, again, African Americans are likely to be disproportionately affected. What you will hear in my conversation with Margaret and Lucy is the contrast between, on one hand, the daily frontline struggles of a mayor, like most mayors, who is battling on behalf of her constituents, and on the other hand, a skilled researcher who has the benefits of objectivity, data, and analysis that shows we are on the front end of this crisis a mayor who is doing whatever is necessary to make life work for her citizens, and a researcher with enough distance to know that the impact of COVID-19 is deeper and more dire than anyone is currently discussing. As you are listening to these conversations, please keep in mind that when we lean in, we will have the opportunity to learn from our history and from these current health and economic crises that we will have the opportunity to make adjustments in the new normal to create communities that are healthier and more sustainable. If we rebuild in our collective and self-interest, then we will soon be back on track again to regaining and maintaining our competitiveness on the world stage. And remember, while it's called COVID-19 this time, if we don't make these important corrections, then it's only a matter of time before the next crisis rips the bark off and exposes our inequities. Here are the conversations with Mayor Abe Koga and Lucy Dadian.
1: Madam Mayor, how are you?
2: Good, thank you. All things considered, <laughs> um, we're just you know plugging away. It's been busy. Uh, a lot of um, calls, requests, emails, requests for assistance and. Um, it's you know, it's tough in that sense because we're trying to help as many folks as we can, but unfortunately we probably can't get to everyone. So well, um, I,
1: when I look at Mountain View, because of where you're situated and the makeup of so much of your commercial sector, you have a very interesting set of dynamics in your city.
2: Yes, we do. And,
1: and very unique in its own right or not many places quite like it. It's given that you're in the heart of um, Silicon Valley and many of your large technology companies are either headquartered there or have major presences there, yes. um, I'm aware of your half a million dollar program that was passed at city council for to help renters who have... Um, had adverse impacts from covid nineteen how how does that program work and how is it working
2: yes. yes so um we actually have passed now have passed a a total of one point three million dollars in a right. uh, a relief package for a number of different sectors so we were trying to um you know help again help as many folks as we can the original five hundred thousand dollars that actually is city funding um we collect housing impact fees and below market rate impact fees so whenever a developer of a market rate project develops they are required to pay a certain fee to contribute to our affordable housing fund okay. and so the half a million dollars from that fund that the city has. And so we partner with a nonprofit group called Community Services Agency here. They're they're like our main charity organization. And um, we've actually had this program of a short-term rental uh, relief, um, emergency relief fund for several years now, and each year the city puts in about $150,000 into that fund so we were able to increase that to a half a million this time around, um, hearing and knowing that there would be um, more folks who would be needing help paying their rent to uh, to tide them over until the this hopefully <laughs> blows soon. So that was how we got that program up and running or it's existing, and so the, the nonprofit is already has a screening process, and so they are underway, and uh, so far, actually, I've heard that we have quite a few folks who have requested assistance, so I think that's a challenge.
1: You, you increased it from 500 to 1.3. Do you think you have seen the end of the tunnel, or do you anticipate? I mean, obviously, it depends on how long this goes, but if it's... If it's a 60-day proposition, or maybe I should ask, how long do you think 1.3 million goes, given the apparent
2: need? Yeah. So, um, actually, the rental relief is the, still the $500,000. 1.3 million, the other $800,000, we are using to create a small business relief fund, which is uh, another half a million and that includes $100,000 set aside for apartment small apartment owners so um those that own nine units or less and we have about half of our apartment complexes are such small apartment complexes and so with the rent relief and um you know there's also a moratorium on evictions due to non-payment of rent for during this time until the end of May that the states implemented and then each of the cities um, we've implemented our own. But oftentimes folks forget the other side of the equation that there are you know, small apartment owners who may not be able to afford to not get paid for two months or so. Um, there's the senior citizen that, that has a, and we do have a lot of seniors here who are property rich but income poor. Um, because of the cost of housing. Most of their assets are the, is in the, the home or maybe they bought the apartment complex for income for their um, retirement. And so we just wanted to make sure that they were also included. And so we have 100000 set aside for loans in case they need to do some kind of repair and can't quite afford to do it at this time. So that's the other half a million. And then we put another some funding into our homeless services. So we have what we call safe parking lots. We have oversized or RVs that have been parked in the city. And recently we created these um, lots where they can park and um, get services and case management and whatnot. So we've opened three of those lots that should fit about 75 to 85 vehicles. And we've also put out $50,000 for portable restrooms and hand-washing stations and showers and laundry um, washers and dryers for the homeless, a $50,000 fund for grocery gift cards for the homeless. Wow. Um, And so total, all of that is $1.3 million. And then in addition to that, uh, Google has um, provided a million-dollar grant to Various nonprofits and also put into our small business relief fund um, as a result of their cancellation of their big conference, the I/O conference that is usually held this time of year, so totaling about over oh, close to two and a half million dollars in relief.
1: You just answered um, a couple <laughs> of my questions. I'll I'll modify them slightly, but um, sure. Do you? A lot of people doing what I'm doing, maybe not on a podcast, but knocking on your door and trying to understand how you, what you're implementing. Given that it seems you have a pretty diversified set of initiatives to address yes. many sectors, and I, I would have to think that that's highly creative among city leaders at this stage in the process.
2: Yes, for us. For a city our size, I believe we're the only ones doing this so far. Um, I did get some calls from other city leaders um asking you know what we did and how we did it. so my hope is that we are encouraging other cities to do the same. but I understand that you know every city has different circumstances and sure. we are and we are fortunate that we've had a good economic times and had some funding set aside um, over the last few years with a budget surplus. We've had these programs in place, like the Rent Relief uh, Fund, and we were able to just add to it so we didn't have to start from scratch in creating a program. Um, And that this program actually was something that I've... um, been championing for uh, several years now as um the housing crisis has grown um, my 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 hope and my hope especially now with um with covid nineteen is um, folks need help right away and so um you know the it's not a maybe not a lot of funding, but my hope was that we could get assistance out as quickly as possible and try to um try to buy some time for folks for lack of a better word, um, until the federal funding comes down to the local level. So that was the thought was with this um rent relief package and the other um small business fund um pack which will be administered as mostly grants and some microloans. Um the hope was that you know we could help folks pave that rent that's due this month or um, even for small businesses, their rent or maybe to pay for their Internet or just the small um, bills that add up that um, they would need help paying right away and just until the federal funding comes down and hopefully soon, hopefully in a few weeks. <laughs> but well, I Oh, go ahead, sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I've been in government a long time now that I understand the pace of government. <laughs> and so that was my thought was um at least locally we have more we have more control that maybe we could get something going more quickly to help people right away.
1: Well, Madam, um I appreciate the time. I want you to know you have one of the thankless jobs because When you're doing well and attracting business, the people are complaining it's going to drive up (laughs) the cost of housing. Yes. And and when you are building housing, there's another side that isn't satisfied, that you're not doing enough for commerce. And no matter what, you're going to have constituents that are going to be taking shots at you. So (laughs) you have one of those unenviable jobs of never being able to have let's just say, a full population of happy people. Appreciate it very much.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you for um, reaching out. It's always a pleasure for me to be able to um, share our experience here in Mountain View. I'm very proud of our city, and our residents are really just a very special group of folks very uh, knowledgeable and very involved, but also very compassionate and understanding and reasonable. And I think that's what's helped us as um, within city government do what we need to do. And, and I think that's what makes Mountain View um, the special place that it is. And even with this COVID-19 situation, and as much as the city has put together this relief package We've also heard from many of our residents wanting to help, and so the other piece to this is um that we have created a a donation portal called together m v where folks can go to offer their assistance if they choose to to one of these funds and We also have folks who volunteering and just also just the day to day checking on in on your neighbors. I've been outside a lot gardening and I uh, see folks out and just that friendliness and that that small town feel that despite our size still exists, what makes Mountain View the special place that it is. So I'm very fortunate to, to be the mayor here.
0: Leadership does matter.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
0: That was my conversation with Mayor Margaret Abekoka, who's fighting every day for her city. Coming up next is my conversation with researcher Lucy Dadayan. For the audience, could you just tell us what you do every day?
3: So, I work for the State and Local Finance Initiative, where I'm leading the State Tax and Economic Project, which is really the main source of data and analysis on state tax revenue collections for which I collect data and information from all 50 state fiscal agencies and I, I analyze the data, to provide information to back the states as how their taxes are doing, what are the economic indicators, what to expect in the coming months and quarters. So we do have different uh, reports on a regular basis. We provide quarterly reports covering state tax and economic indicators. And we also have monthly revenue highlights for which we provide quick review of how states are doing in terms of tax revenue collection in a given month. And we also have occasional other Revenue related reports such as uh, reviewing the state's official revenue forecasts or reviewing uh, tax revenue collections from unusual sources, of, such as syntaxes, that is, revenues from alcohol, tobacco, gambling, etc.
0: So, for those listeners who do not follow state budgets, income and sales tax revenue and state policy and so on with the same level of attention that you do every day, let's try and see if we can get everybody on the same page. And so the thought, the question I had, I know that you've looked into how states are forecasting their budgets. So can you share with us what impact you think the states anticipate that COVID-19 will have on their budgets?
3: Sure. So it's important to know that states have different tax revenue structures. And, but overall, most states rely heavily on income tax and sales tax. And states are divided into two groups. Uh, states that have annual Budgets and all states that have biennial budgets. So this year, 33 states were negotiating their budgets when the COVID-19 hit the United States and became widespread. So what happened is states had already prepared their official revenue forecasts for the forthcoming fiscal year 2021. And already states were forecasting much weaker revenue growth in fiscal year 2021 than in fiscal year 2020 for a host of reasons, which now seem completely irrelevant, whether it was um, anticipation of economic downturn because we were in the longest economic expansion, whether it was related to the a tariff war or whether it's related to the aging population and reduced labor force. So there were lots of, host of uh, reasons why states would justifiably anticipate much weaker revenue growth in fiscal year 2021. But COVID-19 changed everything dramatically. And uh, states now have to go back and revisit their revenue forecasts and to see how much revenue shortfall they will be having, not only in forthcoming fiscal year 2021, but also in the current fiscal year 2020. And no state was actually anticipating any revenue shortfall before the COVID-19 hit the United States.
0: Wow. Well, but I know that the there have been some steps taken to sort of give comfort to the taxpayer Mm -hmm. without necessarily forecasting fully the impact on states. So relatively early in the pandemic, the IRS announced um, income tax filings would now be due on July 15th or by July 15th instead of April 15th, which was the traditional date. Uh, Mm -hmm. That sounds like a simple change of date, but can you explain the impact that such a change would have or has had on states?
3: Sure. So changing the date, the due date for all states, is something that I don't think was ever done. But, of course, it's certainly justifiable to change the date. And by April 1st, every single state had delayed their state Income tax due date as well. Now, this is problematic from the budgetary perspective. And why is it problematic? Because April is usually the most important month in any given fiscal year. So on average, uh, in a typical state fiscal year, states collect around 15% of all income tax revenues only in the month of April. And more so 75% of that revenue comes in the last five days before the due date, before the April 15 due date. Now all states have delayed, and which means that states revenue forecasters simply don't know how much revenue to anticipate and they will have to wait, Or some of them will have to wait until mid-July to see how much revenue we are getting uh, and whether we are getting enough revenue for fiscal year 2020. And July 15 is already going to be the beginning of the next fiscal year 2021. Of course, some states will be able to shift income tax revenues collected around July 15, like two fiscal year 2020, because that's really where the revenue belongs to, right? Because it was supposed to be collected in 2020, particularly states that have modified account accrual basis, etc.
0: Was that not a little strange to pick July 15th since it is in another year? So that meant that some states that have, a, a lot of states have a fiscal year of July 1 through June 30th. So that mm-hmm. meant that they collected their revenues from income taxes in fiscal year 2019, but then they will miss completely
3: mm-hmm. the
0: tax collection window for this year. And does that not leave it as a whole year where you do not have the tax correct collection um, obligation hitting? within that 12-month window?
3: Yeah. And, I mean, I don't know why it was delayed to July 15 rather than a bit earlier. That was done by the federal government, and it's not an issue from the federal government perspective because their fiscal year starts in October 1st. Right, sure. But, But the states had to follow. But, I mean, there are very few states that have... Uh, not delayed until July 15, but to some other date. For example, I believe Mississippi had delayed until May 15. So, I mean, in that, that date, July 15, of course, is problematic, and not only because it falls into a different fiscal year, but also is problematic for the states to know how much revenue to anticipate now? Previously, the federal government had delayed income tax due date for very few states in two thousand seven for eastern states that were hit very badly by the flooding. But to have something like this is really unprecedented.
0: Hmm. So all right. So then let's let's shift a little bit to oil um, because I assume related to the pandemic, some some issues, but some perhaps not, the world oil markets have experienced a steep decline in oil prices. (laughs) I mean, really outrageous declines. What what do you expect the fallout to be in states, in those states that rely so heavily on, on the oil and gas industry? And I think about Texas and Louisiana. Wyoming, maybe West Virginia, and others. So what do you think that looks like?
3: So yes, there are, as you mentioned, there are a few states that have high reliance on the oil industry, particularly Alaska, where nearly three quarters of tax revenues come from severance tax. But other states, as you mentioned, North Dakota, Louisiana, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Texas, West Virginia, and Wyoming. So each of them has a large um, reliance on uh, severance taxes. And what's going to happen is what we have seen in 2015-16 when the uh, price of the oil has declined we have seen a decline in employment in these states as well as declines in overall tax revenue collections so definitely these states will see a large shortfalls in their revenue collections but the good news about these states is that they have relatively large rainy day funds so they can face the shortfalls a bit better compared to other states that might have much Smaller rainy day funds.
0: Huh, I I did not know that there was good news in there somewhere. So I'm happy to hear that.
3: (laughs) We have to Um, have to give both good news and bad news.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So all right. So clearly we're experiencing a unique and never before seen scenario. And I know it's difficult to predict where we'll be a year from now. And you've sort of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but based on what we already know, what can you expect the impact to be on the next fiscal year budgets in states?
3: Sure. Uh, so unfortunately, the outlook is not so great. It's, uh, it's undoubtedly states will see double digit lines in revenue collections and that's what we have seen in the great recession and now we have the great lockdown which leads to shutdown of the entire economy like uh, we have never experienced such a economic shock whether it was in Great Recession or in the previous recession. So looking at the next few months, states must definitely address an unforeseen revenue shortfalls and sudden growth in spending because of the public health and economic crisis caused by COVID-19. In just the first four weeks of uh, the spread of COVID-19, the unemployment insurance claims surpassed the levels seen during the Great Recession in the first year of the Great Recession. So we can already see the spending pressure whether it's on unemployment insurance or um, also the public health cost and um, for sure state and local governments will need some aid from the federal government. Hmm.
0: So uh, well But do I understand, I think I understand that there's currently no legal means for states to file bankruptcy. But as we all know, we've been hearing all the conversations uh, in Washington about giving states the ability to file bankruptcy. What would be the economic impact if, if states, especially the ones with really large economies like California and New York and Texas and Florida and so on, if they were to file bankruptcy, what does all that
3: mean? I think the discussions of bankruptcy filing should simply be off the table because, as you mentioned, it's unconstitutional and also it's against the federal bankruptcy code. So uh, I wouldn't even go as far as uh, allowing states to file for bankruptcy. Instead, the federal government should step up and provide aid to state and local governments. And I know that uh, there is a bipartisan support for such a request to the federal government for getting more aid uh, for uh, supporting state and local governments. I mean, of course, federal government already provided a lot of help, whether it's in terms of the CARES Act, but unfortunately, there there are some limitations tied to the CARES Act. For example, it specifies that state and local governments can use that money only related to COVID-19, addressing um, spending or other things related to COVID-19 but we cannot use money for lost tax revenues and this is where state and local governments will need some help. For example, New York City mayor said that they need $7.4 billion from the federal government to address the lost revenues. So such decision will be made and I'm hoping that the federal government will provide aid to the states and
0: local governments. So let's take, let's take a contrary position. Let's assume nothing happens. Let's assume Washington or the White House and Congress do not act. What, is, what options are there that are available to states next year? I mean, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm asking a crazy question, but You know, we've seen stagnation before. So if nothing happens, what does that mean that states can do? What options do they have?
3: Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, not much. I mean, in the previous downturn, states had um, usually had three options. The first option is to raise tax rates. Now, can states raise tax rates during the public health pandemic? I don't think so. The second option is to cut spending, but where do you cut spending when you have such a substantial increase in spending driven by the pandemic? I mean, yes, states can cut spending on non-essential services, and that's what they have done in the Great Recession. They have cut spending on things like parks and recreational activities, swimming pools or whatever. that's not a solution that's not gonna um, save a lot of money to the state and local governments and also they can tap into rainy day funds but there are also some limitations how much uh, money they can withdraw from the rainy day funds and some of the rainy day funds have restrictions earmarked for specific um, uh, programs and services they can also look into other instruments such as tax and revenue anticipation notes etc but all of that is really really hard given the situation so the best case scenario would be for the federal government to to step up and help the state and local governments
0: wow so i guess there's really it's hard to make to have a good picture as severe and as bad as this prediction or forecast looks. So I'm not gonna try to get a good picture out of this bad situation. But let me ask you, you're living inside of this every day. You're seeing some of the carnage. What unique twists or questions you are you trying to ask yourself to drive your research, let's say over the next 30 days, or, or 45 days, which seems like a lifetime. What are you looking at specifically inside of this dilemma that you're trying to get some answers to?
3: Uh, I mean, every day is a surprise and, you know, <laughs> such a fast-moving, fluid situation. It's rapidly evolving, And, um, I mean, I think... Unfortunately, um, sets haven't used the expansion period in being better prepared for a situation like this, even though a situation like this would have never been. On the table, never nobody would have ever imagined to be in such a situation. So, and it seems like nothing is off the table. Whether it's like uh, ideas that seem so uh, radical or crazy, such as the entertainment of wealth tax or other uh, things that um, usually were not welcomed by mainstream politicians but now nothing seems to be off the table and it will be interesting to follow and see if uh, states might look into uh, for example broadening their sales tax base or looking into taxing more services and, uh, yeah, we will have to see what, what, what are the states doing and uh, whether they can come up with alternative solutions to address the budget shortfalls.
0: Well, Lucy, I want to say very difficult uh, topic, very hard to process. The uh, challenge seems humongous, and we know it is because we're seeing it play out every day. I want to thank you for the work you do, the research you engage in. It helps to put more of a personal face on what seems like a black box that's hard to understand. And so I thank you for your research and your work and appreciate you taking the time to share with us your perspective and what your research is revealing on this subject. So thank you all so very much for what you do.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Create the Village is produced by Rick White, directed and edited by Brennan Robison. Create the Village is a production of The Integral Group, LLC. Copyright The Integral Group, 2020.